Hello. It looks like you're trying to listen to Remaniacs. Would you like some help with that? The project cannot be saved. Please restart your government and try again. Welcome to Romaniacs. I'm Dorian Linsky, and joining me this week are three power users of Microsoft Office. <laughs> Ian Dunt is the editor of politics.co.uk and author of How to Be a Liberal. You can get a 10% discount code for your copy when you click the link in the show notes. And Ian, I'm sure, will be giving us some of the money from that. Hi, Ian. That's just, just to be clear, that, that is absolutely not true. <laughs> no one gets the money. All the, all the money must come to me. You're bathing in liberal cash. No, I've had to build a whole basement for it. It's just overflowing. Now, nearly 16,000 positive COVID tests went missing from the daily figures last week because the Excel spreadsheet that was being used to track them had become too large. And how can any human being be expected to to foresee that problem? Um, where does this rate on the on the grayling scale of, of incompetence? Oh, not high, not high. No, no, that's not helpful because... I mean, look, it's like a catastrophic cock-up using technology that's completely ill-suited and, I mean, literally decades out of date. But that's, you know, you can see, sort of see how they ended up there, you know, patching shit up and getting to this problem. Whereas grailing stuff is like, A, a whole other level of, of stupid and also a whole other level of venal, you know, like he's, and, and, you know, just with bad motivations. Like you look at his shit in prisons or on ships. I mean, it's all profoundly stupid and he is activating the idea from the start you know from the from the basement level of the idea he's been part of the incompetence involved in it and the wrong-headedness the moral wrong-headedness in it so i mean low on the grayling scale but very high on an average human scale of ineptitude and stupidity (laughs) would would you use some of the 12 billion pound cost of test and trace to get uh, an up-to-date version of microsoft office yeah yeah which gives you more columns yeah yeah. or maybe just buy them a lot of chromebooks (laughs) but either way if they can get past software that was developed in what like 1987 then it will be an improvement on where they are now. I've been looking up the uh, the results on their GeoCities website. <laughs> and uh, uh, Jeeves. Yeah. <laughs> that needs some... Yeah, exactly. I, I asked Jeeves to find their GeoCities. <laughs> <laughs> Nina Schick is a broadcaster and author of Deep Fakes in the Infocalypse. Hi, Nina. Hi. So how did Donald Trump's COVID diagnosis and hospitalization go down in the in the disinformation sphere? Were people sort of busy uh, drumming up stories about it? Well, people were drumming up stories about it, you know, whether he actually had it at all, you know, whether this was a secret kind of like deep state conspiracy. But the biggest winner, actually, bizarrely from his COVID diagnosis is none other than Trump himself, because he's used his COVID diagnosis to set the agenda. I mean, it was only last week that we found out about his tax returns, right? And this week, it's all been about how um, he's got the virus and now he's kind of using it to spread more disinformation about the virus. Ironically, the man who said that this was something that we didn't need to worry about, that we, you know, the US had it completely under control, has now actually got the virus. But he is now saying that it is, again, something that he's beating, he's strong. So if you're one of the 210,000 Americans who's been actually felled or killed by this virus, you know, don't expect any sympathy from, from the president, who has, of course, enjoyed the best medical health care and uh, an experimental kind of cocktail of drugs. He's also used it to stage, you know, just like any tin pot dictator would do, 
uh, all these magnificent photo and video occasions where he's seen striding out from the hospital onto the helicopter. So this is a masterclass, really, in how Trump strategically uses disinformation to push his own narrative, because there is nothing the president has done or his enablers have done in the past few months, which has been... Um, the kind of behavior you would expect your leader to do in the midst of a deadly pandemic. And this has been further evidence of that, really. But is it, is it, is it, does it actually help him, though, to sort of draw all the attention onto his biggest policy failure and the fact that he's allowed the White House to become a plague pit? Yeah, I know it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but there is um, a theory of power called agenda setting. And that is that if you kind of dominate the information waves like Trump does, you literally set the agenda for the nation. So, yes, there will be many people watching this and being like, this is an absolute catastrophe. Um, he... It is showing the world just how disastrous his uh, administration has been in response to the pandemic. But many others will actually take his message of, oh, this is nothing to be worried about. Um, he's strong. Those people who have died from it are weak. And he's just today been spreading more disinformation around um, how flu, you know, the same line that COVID is nothing more than a little flu. He himself, this study came out from Cornell, uh, just last week, which showed that Trump is the single biggest source of disinformation when it comes to COVID. This is the president of uh, the United States and leader Hi. of the free world. And if this pandemic had showed us anything, it is that bad information is dangerous. But in the case of COVID, it literally kills. So uh, you would think that Trump should be out of office by now for his failings. But I think he's using it to his benefit. Well, at least he didn't die. That would have been very, very sad. <laughs> Naomi Smith is Chief Exec of Best of Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Doreen. Uh, Politico reported this week that Rupert Murdoch recently met the next generation of Conservative cabinet ministers, the, the all-stars, uh, <laughs> and was most impressed by Rishi Sunak, hence the sort of soar-away Sunak coverage. Does um, Murdoch's approval matter as, as much as it used to? Is he still the sort of the great power behind the Tory throne? I mean, I, I think I think the end of your sentence sums it up. Murdoch support matters in Tory circles much, much more than it matters for, for persuading the nation as a whole. You know, this is largely because readership of papers is falling and the age of those who still read them, particularly the Murdoch press, is getting older and older. And so while Murdoch is possibly less influential uh, nationally than he was, he's much more influ influential on the right uh, by virtue of who still buys papers. And of course, it's it's the Tory MPs and the Tory faithful who are the ones that get to choose whether a Lannister or a Baratheon is going to take the throne if and when Johnson uh, leaves. I suppose very much could be. There are worse options than him getting there are. I mean, I think I think we're going to get a lot more pro Sunak press across the whole board because he himself is working incredibly hard on it. And remember, he signed all of his flagship policies uh, with you know his his little squiggly, sexy Rishi Sunak signature. Um, and rumor has it in the Telegraph this week uh, that he's trying very hard to sideline Michael Gove on issues relating to lockdown measures. So he's called for a committee of just him and Johnson and Hancock to determine this this traffic light system for different regional lockdowns that may come into force. <clears throat> so he's definitely a man on manoeuvres uh, who sees Gove as his main rival. So I think we're just going to see more and more Sunak headlines. 
I thought he was just doing a doing a job as best he can. If anyone else likes him, that's a bonus. But <laughs> but I'm I'm prepared to buy your more cynical interpretation. On this week's podcast, cabinet rifts and contrarian grifts. Can Boris Johnson convince his own party, let alone the country, that he's got his mojo working? And as the culture war gathers steam, what can us Romaniacs, lefty lawyers, and do-gooders do about it? This week, Boris Johnson attempted to relaunch his leadership with his speech to Conservatives' virtual conference. But with COVID cases rocketing, an unemployment crisis looming, and Tory backbenchers increasingly fractious, Johnson appears to have lost control of the virus, the economy, and the party. Ian, were you convinced by Johnson's vision of fully automated luxury conservatism, or was it, as the man would say, a load of whiff-waff? Oh, no, fully convinced. Now, in fact, I've changed my views on this altogether after that speech. I just thought, you know, maybe he is a great guy with a really clear plan for this country. Yeah, or not. Um, so, okay, the speech was bad, even by his, even by his standards. Like, he, he, you look at each one of the plans. So, I mean, he has, he has a plan. It's mostly sort of low-carbon, renewable energy, one-on-one tuition for school kids, digital IDs and and he just started fucking throwing the shit it was it was like you could almost see the desperation they're just like well who's got another idea you know we'll, we'll do that now we'll, we'll have better toilets now toilets will check your blood pressure every time you take a shit anything you're just throwing out ideas and afterwards when people ask well exactly what is it I mean how are you going to do any of these things they didn't even bother to pretend to have an answer now that's actually very rare like usually, you know, and not just back in the olden days, I mean, you know, just like a few months ago when a leader did a speech and they said, we're going to do this, we're going to, you know, I don't know, improve free school meals, you know, by this date, you would expect them actually to have some kind of numbers there and some kind of plan for it. And that wouldn't have to be in the speech, you know, that would sometimes be in the briefing you get afterwards, but there would be some idea. In fact, briefings afterwards, just like, well, you heard him say it. He said it in the speech. You're like, well, yeah, obviously we heard him say that he was going to do a thing. He didn't tell us whether he could do the actual thing that he said he was going to do. So really there was, you know, even by the parody that you have of this guy as someone who doesn't really intend to do anything is just desperately trying to, you know, come up with some sun sort of, you know, sunlit uplands uh, narrative for himself. It was as unconvincing as he has ever been. So there's no detail on how we'll be able to visit the pleasure domes in our hover cars. Quite yet. <laughs> no, you'll have to wait a little longer for that one. Uh, just a small note about something I, I'm very, very cautious about the overuse of the word Orwellian, but what did you, you, you think of um, him dismissing uh, people that said, back in the day, that uh, wind turbines couldn't pull the skin off a rice pudding. A very specific, very, very specific uh, analogy, which Boris Johnson himself used. So Boris Johnson was attacking Boris Johnson, using a term that was so unique that anybody could know that that was what he was doing. And it just, it, it was just a very, a very strange moment, I thought. I presumed, I mean, I presumed that that was sort of an in-joke, that he was signposting to himself, you know, that I have previously been against this sort of thing, but now I'm for it. So I didn't think of that as a sort of, yeah, as anything cynical. I sort of thought that he was, he was sort of in on the joke or he was, he was purposefully referencing his own stuff. It's odd that he didn't mention that it was from him, <laughs> but I didn't think, but, but I did presume that it was a, it was right. a gag of sorts, like an in-joke gag in whatever god-awful alternate reality we seem to have found ourselves in. 
Well, we'll be talking culture war games later, but there was a, a lefty baiting bit of the speech where he said they literally want to pull statues down. They want to rewrite the history of our country to edit our national CV to make it more politically correct. We aren't embarrassed to sing old songs about how Britannia rules the waves. All those many, many songs about how Britannia <laughs> rules the waves. <laughs> There's a specific one where the name escapes me. What, what role was that playing? No, they're gagging for this stuff. So, I mean, they're gagging on all of those sort of keynote um, cultural issues. And, of course, he also echoed almost word for word Priti Patel's speech, you know, that that you were referring to earlier about do-goody lawyers and human rights and it's all gone mad and blah, blah, blah. And on those two areas, you know, day-to-day meat and potatoes, cultural division issues and the asylum system, they think that they're in a good position to, to, to gun on the culture war. And they do it on the basis of polling. Like, you look at the polling on asylum. Like, I mean, you know, my position on the asylum issue is pretty clear. But, like, the polling is not with us on this stuff. I mean, if you give um, the public ever more draconian sort of asylum proposals, they'll very often sign up to it. And with most of the stuff, you know, it's insofar as people care about it, about should you be able to, you know, sing the last night of the proms, then people will say, well, yes, of course, which is not unusual. So on these, they just think it's a popular culture war issue. It's a clear dividing line that they can use. And they're just trying to deliver on it as much as possible. And they'll keep on throwing shit at that target until one of it really, really hits. And then they'll make everything about that. Well, more more on that later. Um, Naomi, who do you think he was talking to? I, I, I saw a lot for the base. I didn't detect much for people who maybe voted Tory for the first time last year. Uh, I mean, I, I, I agree with Ian that um, it was particularly in its sort of lack of any substance but other than that to me it just sounded like a very traditional Tory speech from from a leader to its conference so Mm. your audience therefore just being you know those people weird enough and odd enough and deviant enough that actually go to party conferences um (laughs) and and I I say that with um with some evidence I I think that you're more likely to have a criminal record than be a member of a political party so you are technically more deviant uh if you are a member (laughs) of a party and deviant still if you actually turn up and turn up online um which I think you know means that you've got a very very narrow group of people who are actually listening um and of course the Murdoch press will will have also been uh, an audience that he was preaching to but no he he didn't need to throw bones to those sort of totemic red wall switch voters away from labor because the chances of them actually watching or even knowing it happened are so infinitesimally small this is just about you know shore, shoring up his popularity so that the next con home poll on their website isn't quite so bad for him as as it as it has been recently was it wise of him to draw attention to the rumours that he was depleted by COVID? Is it is it a question of protesting too much? Yes. I mean, God, do you remember when he did that awful press-up that made it onto the front page of the Daily Mail a few months ago uh, to prove his fitness to journalists? It's just, you know, completely cringe. But uh, c- can I just read you um, a, a little excerpt from his speech uh, so that we can mock the sort of true macho wankery of it? He said, I've read, and I'm sorry that I'm not Matt Ford and can't do uh, the, the impression, <laughs> but I've read a lot of nonsense recently about how my own bout of COVID has somehow robbed me of my mojo. And of course, this is self-evident drivel, the kind of seditious propaganda you would expect from people who don't want this government to succeed, who wanted to stop us delivering Brexit and all of our other manifesto pledges. And I can tell you that no power on earth was and is going to do that and I could refute these critics of my athletic abilities in any way they want arm wrestle leg wrestle Cumberland wrestle sprint off you name it so 
yet again just tries to blame pro-Europeans for absolutely everything. Conveniently, glossing over the fact that the vast majority of the rumours about his ill health have come from Dominic Cummings' father-in-law and his own Brexit <laughs> backbenchers. Like, he even had to go and address those backbenchers uh, in early September in a, in a private meeting because there was such growing angst from them that he was becoming soft and they were blaming, you know, his illness and his sort of lack of recovery from it and distraction about being a new dad and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, you know, macho, absolute nonsense, and I don't think it helps him at all. I would still like to see him Cumberland wrestle AC Grayling. Yeah. No, over you the wouldn't. future of Brexit. I don't know what Cumberland wrestling is, but I'd, oh, I'd watch oh, it. Neither did I. Neither did I. So I looked it up and trust me, you will not want them to do it by virtue of what they have to wear. They wear long johns with a, a central velvet patch to cover their modesty. So you don't want to see either Boris Johnson or AC Grayling in that attire, Dorian, I can assure you. That I don't know. That would be quite, I'd be quite up for watching them wrestle in that attire. I, I, I think if I could get into that, yeah. I was going to say shamelessly pandering to the red wall with references <laughs> to, to Cumberland wrestling and velvet patches. They, <laughs> la- they love that stuff there. Nina, over the weekend, several Tory backbenchers leaked their tales of woe that could be summarised as, we got Johnson and Cummings in because we knew they could win us the election, but it turns out they're terrible at governing. Oh, dearie me. Um, now... Now, Trump seems to have sort of, because he has a big cult around him, both both among members and among kind of elected Republican officials, he seems to have sort of transcended accusations of incompetence. Um, but is Johnson much more vulnerable to, to, to those accusations from his own party? The Tories still seem to mind whether or not he's good at it. Well, you're certainly right to point out that there is a difference. I do think that Donald Trump inspires much more of this cultish adherence um, but when it comes to the Conservatives, I mean, something about Boris Johnson, even the party, despite all the complaints and all the bitching, you know, they're sticking by him. And even when all these leaks were coming out throughout this year, as they bungled one crisis to the next from COVID to Brexit, you hear backbenchers complaining, but then at the footnote, they're like, oh, no, but we wouldn't think about replacing him because he's just going to get his mojo back or it's bojo. So... Whilst he isn't inspiring this cultish adherence in the public imagination, I think, he does still seem to have this weird hold on the Conservative Party. And one journalist, Tom Baldwin, you know, as far back as 2004, he wrote this piece in The Times where he said of Boris Johnson, uh, to quote, I hate him because he's been built up and not yet knocked down. He has defied the usual laws of gravity. And I think that's really the interesting thing about Johnson. Why is it that he gets away with everything, whereas his predecessors, you know, this this argument about the Conservatives being so keen always in the end to preserve their own power that they will sacrifice their leaders at the altar. Can you imagine it had been Theresa May in power for the past few months? I mean, she would have been <laughs> dead, dead, dead. And yet with yeah. Boris, I don't know. I think he he he, you know, he'll still survive, which is probably quite frustrating. And I was slightly alarmed to see Johnson back Pretty Patel's attacks on, uh, in his words, lefty do-gooders and human rights lawyers who oppose the government's plan changes to asylum policy. Uh, now, like Ian says, actually, you know, a very strict asylum policy is popular. But is, is that reference to kind of, you know, do-gooding lefty lawyers? Did you read that as a veiled dig at Keir Starmer, who very much was one of those people? It is obviously a veiled dig at Keir Starmer, but it's also broader than that, which is, again, as we've already been discussing at the top of the program, tying into these ideas of, you know, the culture wars and these 
issues where they know or they well as polling shows them they can kind of get the public behind them so being tough on asylum being tough on immigration i mean this is the entire kind of narrative that has been basically responsible for johnson coming to power in the first place for brexit kind of happening so this kind of tapping into this anti-elite do-gooder you know anti-immigrant anti-asylum sentiment is something we've been seeing for years and that we're just going to continue to see and um you know pretty patel like uh almost like in her dominatrix style <laughs> crashing down oh, on no. them <laughs> seems to you know seems to evoke a certain um well, she seems to be the perfect leader for this kind of uh, narrative being spread as well. Naomi, the furlough scheme is ending this month and Sunak has announced the hiring of thousands of work coaches uh, to boost employment. He's also announced uh, very harsh benefit cuts. Mm-hmm. How hard are you expecting this winter to be for employment? Well, at, at Best for Britain, we've been polling all of this at a constituency level and also conducting focus groups on it, uh, particularly in red wall seats. And I, I can't give you the final results. Sorry, sorry, because it's all sort of still being crunched through. But what the top lines I can reveal, and, and that's that the country is incredibly worried about Christmas in particular. They're noticing huge numbers of shop closures on the high streets, local economic collapse to them is even more palpable uh, than it was after coalition austerity. So, of course, we've known that high streets, the country, you know, over have been in terminal decline, but they've, they're have they really noticing how rapid that's been in the last few months. And as a consequence, most are expecting to spend a lot less this Christmas. Um, and, and that's not just because, you know, they're only going to be able to buy six gifts for, for social distancing reasons, but because they're also incredibly worried about job losses for them and in particular their family members. Um, there was other polling out today, and I think it was opinion. Don't at me if that's wrong, because this is a trend we've seen across other polls anyway. But that's that Brits strongly favour tax hikes for the rich over more austerity. And the problem for the Tories on this is that, you know, the super rich have moved their assets out pretty quickly. And so this probably has to mean tax hikes for the the moderately wealthy uh, in order for the coffers to balance. And of course, that that group being uh, much more likely to vote Conservative than other parties. And Sunak got uh, a battering for implying, if not actually stating, uh, ITV had to sort of amend their uh, their headline, that people in the creative industries would have to retrain uh, because he wasn't going to give them any more help. Why is the government so tone deaf about a sector that's worth a lot more than fishing and has a very loud voice? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, their whole plan is mad, or maybe it's a lack of plan. You know, why go to the bother and the trouble of doing 80% furlough in the first half of the crisis and having actually a pretty good Keynesian response to it to then pull the rug out so quickly. Um, and of course, this is going to result in, in a huge rise in unemployment. And they, they, frankly, they've had a terrible crisis because they, they're so muddled. And other industry, they'll, they'll say, look, other industries are being very badly hit too, retail and restaurants. And they'll argue it's not just the arts that are being shafted, but they really are. And, you know, the, the, the dear old Royal Shakespeare Company is now going through mass redundancies. And if they are, then, of course, all the smaller unless asset-rich theatre companies are going to be struggling even more so. Uh, So it is pretty hard not to conclude that this is the right wanting to shaft those they don't think vote for them anyway before they have to then go on and shaft everyone else. This is so severe at the moment, isn't it? Like, I feel that you can just see, you can see a future where this country has just turned into an actual cultural fucking wasteland, where for each town, 
Well, there's just like the, the cinemas, it looks like many, many, many of them will go. And so in most towns, there will be no cinema. There will be no local theater for you theater. to go to. The the musicians are going out of work. Like I mean, stand up comedians. You know, where are these people? Anyone that does art that do, that performs it in front of other human beings is facing a reality of if they don't get government support, they're going to have to go into something else. And that's not even. I mean, like obviously that matters on its own fucking terms. Like a country without culture is like a country without a fucking soul. But it also matters in that it's actually one of the very few for all of their empire chess beating bullshit about the power of, of Britain. The one area that this country actually really does outperform itself is in culture. It's in theater, it's in music, it's in comedy. That's actually what we're known for. And just to allow those things to shrivel up and die, like no one thinking about how this country succeeds could possibly allow that process to take place. And it's astonishing to me that they would even fucking consider it. Well, that's what bothers me because Naomi, of course, you know, the political uh, the politics of this, you know, lovey bashing and a lot of the people in the art sector don't vote for them anyway. But, you know, leave that aside. You've got a huge and economically vital sector, which is also the source of a great deal of this country's soft power. And so it's like, even if you just wanted to be a total dick politically, <laughs> you would just think in terms of kind of the status of this country uh, that you, you would have to do something. And I, I lived in China for quite a long time, and I remember getting a, a taxi one day from Shanghai to Hangzhou for work. And the taxi driver was in his sort of late sixties, and you know, typically, you know, my Chinese was so appalling, and he looked at me and saw that I was a Westerner that he didn't bother engaging much with me until we were on the way back, and he said to me, "And this is incredibly unusual for a, for a Chinese person, particularly of that age, to have said anything at all." But he just said, "You know, my generation, we have no culture." because they live through the Cultural Revolution. And like mm. we have nothing to say to each other. When we meet, you know, to play dominoes in the evening or mahjong, we, we can't talk about art. We can't talk about books. We can't talk about music because we have no culture. And he was sort of saying to me, you know, you're so lucky that you've been able to travel the world and experience things. And, and I, I haven't got that. And my entire generation doesn't. You know, and that, I don't want to sound too hyperbolic about it, but it feels like the start of, you know, a, a huge erosion of all the things that Ian's just listed, all the things that we are renowned for globally, all of our exports around music and theatre and all the rest of it. And I, I, it's deeply, deeply worrying. Um, Ian, finally and relatedly, um, back at the beginning of lockdown, there was talk of Sunak spiking Labour's guns with a sort of massive and popular amount of sort of Keynesian state intervention. But here, Johnson kept going on about how the private sector was the answer and, and almost sort of apologising to, to Tories that they had to do this terribly un-Toryish thing. And, but don't worry, uh, we've done our bit and the private sector can take over. Now, obviously, yes, that probably does. That goes down very well with the, with the membership. But I mean, is, is the public in, in a mood to just go, oh, well, you know, the, the worst is over. Uh, so we don't really need this sort of state help anymore. No, um, that that section was fucking fascinating because he they they the Tories haven't talked that way for quite a long time now. They haven't talked that way since the Brexit vote, right? Before that, obviously, you know, you got Cameron, you got Osborne. They talked that way all the fucking time. That was that was all we heard from them. Then the Brexit vote came in, and and May and Johnson both shifted instantly on economics. We haven't heard that for a while. So look, on the one argument, it's that he's talking to Tory party conferences, just giving them what they want, Boa. But and yet. We haven't heard that kind of talk at Tory party conference very often either. If you remember that god-awful 
um, Citizens of Nowhere speech by Theresa May at Tory party conference. She wasn't put economically. She was already pulling that shift towards the left. So very often we, we haven't heard that. And it, it really made your ears prick up. But look, on the other hand, they are right now still in the Brexit talks where the main crunch issue is fucking state aid. So you're like, well, which, which fucking is it? You know, it's, is it apparently that you care so much about state aid in the EU talks, or is it this kind of classic Milton Friedman, sort of Hayek, the state is always shit, the, um, the market's always fantastic, hogwash that he was talking about in that speech. And the truth is, no one's got a fucking answer for you. I mean, it could just be that he babbles whatever shit happens to throw into his mind at any one time. It could be that he was going for the conference, just trying to tickle their bellies a bit, or it could be that this signals a fundamental economic shift in the way the Tory party's functioning. And at the moment, nobody knows what the answer to that question is. Now, if you're not on social media, then A, well done. Keep it that way. It's horrible. <laughs> B, this week you'll have missed the latest cultural battleground is Sainsbury's. Celebrity relative and aspiring musician Lawrence Fox picked a fight with the supermarket when it made a modest declaration of support for Black Lives Matter. And the whole thing developed about as well as you'd imagine. We might not want a culture war, but we're sort of in one with right-wing media, political celebrities, and some politicians intent on politicising every aspect of life. So if we are in a culture war, how do we win it? What is it? Do we even try? And so on. Ian, the phrase culture war was coined in the early 90s to describe the way American politics was dividing along issues like abortion, gun laws, and multiculturalism rather than economics. It's the kind of what's the matter with Kansas sort of scenario with people voting against their economic best interests because for cultural reasons. But it's only been commonly used over here since the 2016 referendum. And immigration was an issue before, but culture war was not a sort of phrase that was around. What do you think it means in Britain? So look, everyone has a different um, definition of this. My, mine is it's the word that we're using for a very specific process which is taking place in the manner in which we discuss politics. And that process has several stages. The first stage is you take people in this country and you put them into block units. So, for instance, you hear the phrase white working class. On others, you know, you have block units to do with ethnicity or to do, you know, metropolitan elitists, that sort of thing. Now, these units are obviously fictitious. I mean, the, the phrase white working class itself is fucked. And it's extraordinary to me that it's a phrase that we just allow to be used Kind of quite commonly, as if as if there's nothing problematic about that that sentence at all. But of course, it presumes then everyone in this block is quite conservative. Everyone in this block, you know, this sort of an illusion. Oh, they probably support capital punishment. They don't like immigration. They want to sing at the last night of the proms. Ethnic minorities, of course, in under that worldview, then a sort of ruled out of the working class. So even though their economic conditions might be exactly the same as, you know, someone living in a town up north, they're considered to be part of the elite, part of a separate unit. You break people down into these units. You then make us, you basically presume that they are homogenous with other people that are like them and completely different to people who are not like them. So then, for instance, you get into a world of art where, you, you know, anyone that lives in a city, they don't really care where they live. They're an anywhere person. You know, they just float around. They don't have any sort of national identity. They don't care about Britain at all. They, they don't, you know, sing the national anthem, all of that kind of basic binary simplicity. And then you look at little items that can sort of um, 
emphasize those divisions and ideally worsen them. And some of those items are really minor, right? Some of those items are Sainsbury's, as you know, got a rainbow flag or, or is celebrating Black Pride Month or something like that. Others are really big and systemic, like Brexit. Brexit is one of those issues in exactly the same way. We knew when we were debating Brexit, you know, we could sit here going, well, it's about customs and tariffs. But of course, it fucking wasn't. It was basically a hinge issue by which people could reflect their own sense of cultural identity. So that's the process. You know, you put people in their categories, you claim that they're the same with everyone in that category and completely different to those outside of it. And then you throw issues out at it and see which ones take light. And that, to me, is the culture war. We would like to apologise for Mainnet's listeners for leading you to think that Brexit was about customs and tariffs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know why we talked about them so much. Um, so Romaniac's guest Marie Leconte wrote uh, a great piece for Vice a while ago about backbenchers not being nearly as keen on this as number 10, or certainly some backbenchers, and the right-wing papers are. Beyond Brexit and immigration, um, <clears throat> Brexit obviously a relatively new factor, immigration quite an old one. I mean, does this stuff uh, really engage voters? Are there lots of people getting cross about uh, Sainsbury's and Rule Britannia and, uh, you know, a diverse dance routine on um, whatever that dance show is. Um, like, is this really, is this really kind of uh, engaging people who are having a, a pretty hard time for serious reasons? Yeah, lots of the time I think it does. And, and I've seen in my own life, uh, you know, people who previously weren't that engaged are quite susceptible to the idea especially this idea of your culture somehow being wiped out or of being forced to be inclusive in a way that feels unjust to people. I, I do think that a lot of people are quite susceptible to it. And whichever way you look at it, you know, these issues are readily understandable issues. You know, if we want to have a conversation about even something, like even a relatively sort of simple policy area like housing, very quickly that becomes very, very complicated and kind of abstract in a way. But if you just say, you know, uh, someone's written a piece that they're annoyed that there's, you know, a brown person on midsummer murders. You know what I mean? Like if you, if you go into that room, people instantly understand this stuff and they will quite quickly develop quite strong opinions about it. So I, I, it's not so much that people generate it themselves. It's that people are liable to become sucked into those debates quite easily. And that, you know, you look at radio shows, you look at morning TV shows. No, I'm not even talking, you know, Sky News, BBC News, all of that, the Telegraph. I'm talking about, you know, morning TV programs and sort of Radio 2 phone-in programs, Radio 500, they love that shit because, again, they know that people understand it instantly and people tend to have an instinctive reaction to it. So I wouldn't underestimate the appetite for this sort of thing in, in the public at large. Nina, what do you think of this? Do you read this as a sort of an attempt to import American divisions into a country where we, we, we don't have the same tradition of, of we certainly don't have as many different wedge issues as America does. Yes, but it is also a broadly similar phenomenon. And what happens in the United States is usually kind of a bellwether for, you know, how many other Western, Euro the debate and how in other Western European countries goes. So it's very interesting to see, for example, um, what happened after the killing of George Floyd and how that spread um, the, the, the kind of, debate spread not only directly to the UK, but kind of the rest of the Western world. I think the really interesting point about these so-called culture wars and these internal divisions is that to a certain extent, this is something which is completely navel gazing. You know, we are 
now in this facing a time where there is going to be tremendous upheaval, not only because of the kind of seismic geopolitical changes that are taking place, but also because of the exponential technological advances that are just fundamentally rewriting politics and society and even what it means to be human, combined with existential threats like climate change. So to me, it's kind of bizarre that, you know, whilst all of this is going on, um, we're so wrapped up in kind of who, who goes to the proms and who's singing Rule, Rule Britannia or what did Sainsbury's post on their Instagram. And it's almost a distraction almost of the kind of biggest fundamental challenges I think that are facing us as a society. And on the bunker this week, we talked about how the US is is a lot more liberal uh, in some respects than we might assume. And in The Guardian, John Harris suggested the same thing about the about the red wall voters. If we are becoming broadly sort of more progressive, that there are certain there's definitely certain advances that have been made. What wedge issues do you think really do have the power to, to work and to press those buttons? In a way that, say, now gay marriage, which may once have been one of those issues, certainly in Britain, does does not have that power. Yeah, I think it goes back to what Ian was saying about how we've kind of come to this point where we put people in block units and we have this binary simplicity. When the reality is that voters have a lot more nuanced votes, uh, nuanced opinions, and that we are as a society, you know, much more progressive than we were even ten years ago. Um, there was in that piece by John Harris, he he quoted this new elected Tory MP who said. There's an interesting view by some within the party that red wall seats will automatically not be as pro-LGBT. That's nonsense. People in red wall seats in general just want to be allowed to get on and live their damn lives. And they want everyone else to live their lives freely. And I think that really is the sentiment in British society as a whole. So again, I think that when it comes to this idea that, you know, most people just want to be allowed to live their lives and let others live their life in peace too. I think that's fundamentally universally shared. Naomi, we tend to think of culture warriors as, as mainly stroke only on the right. Are there culture warriors on the left, you know, who are really sort of uh, aggressively making the running in the same way? And, and if so, what are their wedge issues? Oh, I mean, I, to be honest, I kind of find the premise of this kind of question a bit troubling because you know we are in a culture war so of course there are culture warriors on the left and you know there probably bloody well should be um and and why are we called romaniacs if we aren't part of that culture war you know who who is i mean the tories aren't as right wing as they were on economics particularly not this year um and so values have become a lot more relevant and much more of a, of a battleground and on the right of course their their wedge issues do seem to be um cancel culture and and free speech and i think you know i will come to a point about the left but but on the right there are really sinister undertones to to a lot of what we hear from even government ministers on it so you might remember that that matt hancock last week dismissed the Labour MP Tan Desi of, of uh, using divisive language when he was just sort of doing a legitimate bit of, you know, criticism and scrutiny of, of, of what a minister was saying in the House. And it, 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 it's, it's an attack on 
you know, it, it's this framing of, well, any attack on us is an attack on the whole nation and the whole mm-hmm. of Britain. And it's so unpatriotic of you to do it, which is totally like classic authoritarian tactics. And I think while it is a tactic with, with Hancock as well, it may just have been a bit more about his nerves getting very, very frayed after eight months, you know, maybe understandably of, of COVID. And I guess combating it from from those of us that maybe aren't on the far left, but but do consider ourselves to be on the liberal left, is is to you know use evidence and reason and all those things that that we do, but maybe to frame our questions a bit differently. So you know, in the interest of the country, in the interest of ordinary Britons, you know, can the minister tell me why government agencies are still using a two thousand and three version of Excel to just try and prick their bubble on their obvious attack lines back to us um of course there are annoying irritating hyperbolic people on the left that that you know scream uh in the wrong way and don't act with reason but i do think we would be doing so many people a disservice if we didn't engage in the culture war from the left because it is a war and we're in it um and you know non-white people and women and lgbtq plus people they they deserve it and they need it and, and we do have to participate well i mean what strikes me about the, the left certainly at the moment and and labor in is that it seems quite hard for the tories to push this uh electorally if labor refuses to play ball because starmer is not in favor of statues being pulled down he's certainly in favor of um you know them being kind of certain, there being discussion about them and then possibly being, you know, legitimately removed. He's not trying to ban songs at last night at the proms. Like he just seems to be like, they're constantly trying to kind of get him into this going, go on, go on, go on. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he just sort of won't. And I suppose that's why I'm trying to unpack this whole idea of a culture war is that sure. Yeah. Okay. Brexit, immigration, these are big, big issues, uh, you know, you know, rights, for minority groups, obviously, but those have been around for quite a long time, a very long time, uh, you know, apart from Brexit. So that to me doesn't seem to be really what's happening here. So much of what the culture war seems to mean now is this sort of trivial stuff. And Starmer seems to have had a kind of his trivia vaccine. <laughs> and he just, <laughs> it just, he's just like, no, no, I'm not interested. So it's almost like there isn't, there isn't a target there. It has to be, academics or random people on Twitter or, you know, street protesters because it can't be Labour. Yeah, I mean, look at how desperate they got on the last night of the prom stuff, right? Because there was no one fucking calling for it. You know, there was basically a meeting at the BBC where they were like, well, there's not going to be anyone in the hall, so it looks a bit weird if people sing. And it turned into, right, they're going to ban singing on the last night of the proms because it's not politically correct and Black Lives Matter. And then the press, remember, this story went on for fucking days. And they were trawling the fucking orchestras of the world to find, you know, a, an oboist who would say that they don't think that they should sing Royal Britannia because that would just keep the fucking thing going. Like, ultimately, we have to like distinguish between two different things here. One of them is the opposition party and the rest of it is, you know, the rest of us who might hold broadly sort of, you know, progressive liberal views, whatever. Now, these are not the same categories, right? And it, it, it is not sensible for Starmer to get involved in these wars for a couple of reasons. I mean, the first one is he has a very broad patchwork of electoral alliances that he needs to maintain for Labour to be able to win an election, which means that that whole area is just a fucking death sentence for him and he shouldn't be going anywhere near it. The second is that that is not just a a reality of what he faces. It is an organizational, an important organizational principle for British democracy that his political party should be looking to bring together voters with the broadest possible policy agenda 
in order to secure a governing coalition. And that's healthy for the country. That's healthy for democracy, rather than what we've seen with Cummings, with Trump, where you're just trying to divide voters and then deliver remorselessly for your base while sort of, you know, while portraying the other side as the most fiendish monsters imaginable. So that is the party political culture war response that Starmer needs to have. That is not necessarily the case for everyone else, where, you know, they can decide what are the issues that you fight? What are the ones where you're giving it more oxygen? And that is not a question that you can answer as a flat term. In some cases, you've got to have the fight. You know, when it comes to what they're going to do with asylum, you can see that they love the cultural element. But if asylum, if the asylum system is damaged by these monsters, that means that people who need protection, who need help, are not going to get it. So you've got to have the fight. Yeah. In other areas where they're just desperately going yeah. for the fight, where there's no substance there, you, you kind of do want to deprive them of the oxygen. So you have to make a case-by-case decision, really. Nina, you write a lot about how social media algorithms spread sort of culture war arguments and, and memes. And I think the big problem that keeps coming up here is it's like if you pay too much attention, you give them the, the oxygen of publicity and you intensify engagement. And then if you ignore them, then they're just allowed to go around spreading disinformation and, and nobody stops them. I mean, what do you as, a, as an individual you know, think, you know, how do you do it and how would you recommend other people do it to deal with? Um, that kind of real sort of fire stoking disinformation? So I would say almost like the first principle is if for those of you getting your information, like all of us do online, um, just to understand that the tenor of the debate that you see online is not necessarily representative of what actual voters and what your colleagues and what the country thinks. And this is something that is absolutely going to magnify because like in my book, I talk about um, disinformation that's generated by AI. And we're only at the very beginning of that journey. But a lot of this kind of AI generated disinformation is not only going to come in text and video format, but it's also going to be these false stories, fake personalities, AI avatars, bots. So whatever you think of as like unsophisticated bots on Twitter now, because of AI, they're actually going to legitimately look like people. They're going to be able to engage in conversation with you. Um, so I think there needs to be this realization that some of these online conversations might generally be almost more inauthentic than authentic. So I think we need to talk about how do we engage in discourse where we actually know that we're talking to an authentic person. And I think uh, that is kind of almost like the fundamental driving point that I'd say to listeners, do not think that the discourse you see online is reflective of really what's happening in society. It's Lawrence Fox AI. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he might be. Naomi, one of the most uh, effective cultural arguments on the right has been to find sort of cancel culture. It's a ubiquitous thing. Uh, which turns criticism into equates criticism with censorship as long as it's on the left. If you're on the right, <laughs> you can sense, sense people and it's totally fine. Um, is that kind of a lost battle, uh, that phrase? Uh, you know, what, what can the kind of uh, can liberal left do to try and draw some of the poison out of it? I mean, that's a very, very good question. And, and frankly, the whole 
issue of cancel culture probably warrants far more debate about what it means than we probably got time for now. But I think some of the things to chew on are to ask, you know, is cancel culture about socially ostracizing someone for their views? Or is it about free speech? Or is it about consequence free speech, which I think is certainly where the likes of of Katie Hopkins and and Lawrence Fox are. Um, so there's definitely a debate to be had about, you know, socially ostracizing people for their views. Uh, but as liberals, there must be times when we don't tolerate intolerance. Um, uh, and Ian alluded to this. And the late great Karl Popper taught us that we don't have to be tolerant of intolerance. And, and he defines something called the paradox of tolerance, um, which is a bloody good place for liberals to start from when we think about whether or not to engage in cultural debates. And he said that if a society is tolerant without limit, its ability to be tolerant is eventually seized or destroyed by the intolerant. And so, of course, it's just it's contradictory to extend freedom of speech to extremists who, if if successful, will ruthlessly suppress the speech of those with whom they disagree. So, you know, as I said earlier, we've got a duty to non-white people and immigrants and and, and others uh, to carry on calling them out. And basically what our opponents are doing is stealing our rhetoric Um, stealing our rhetorical clothes from us and and dressing themselves up in them. They're trying to appropriate our arguments uh, to try and make us look hypocritical and to make them appear much more respectable and acceptable and valid to wider society. So, for instance, on the whole issue of freedom of movement around the Brexit debate, you know, they were the first ones to say, oh, but what about non-white immigrants from outside the EU? Mm -hmm. We're the ones that are really pro-immigration, not you. Or when they get pulled out, called out for, for, for pushing creationism in schools, they respond with, it's only a theory. Are you against theories? And, <laughs> and also it's all bullshit because they don't mean any of it. Like they don't mean what they say. And like I said earlier about, about Matt Hancock not wanting opposition to be free to speak criticism. Or last week we had that guidance from the Department for Education that, um, that, that talked up the harm of cancel culture while simultaneously saying those with anti-capitalist views shouldn't be welcome to schools right so Mm. so they don't even mean what they say i would also i do think that one thing that's quite important though is to re is to sort of pull back things like freedom of speech and debate because i think for a lot of people i think particularly younger people those are right-wing terms now and i think the implications of that are really troubling because freedom of speech is really important debate if it's good faith debate and not just some bullshit is important censorship is bad and I yeah. do just worry that sometimes the repressive tolerance idea leads people to just sort of go, ah, you know, to become a lot more pro-sensitive, a lot less. And it just so angers me that freedom of speech is now represented by fucking, you know, uh, Lawrence Fox or Toby you. Young. I mean, Jesus uh, Christ. The idea I mean, that they're the people championing it. And it's just no. like, why, why are there not more people on the uh, left who we associate with that? Dorian, I completely agree with you. And liberals and progressives have made terrible mistakes over the last few decades, you know, breaking trust, appearing elitist, uh, not planning for population change, not sharing the proceeds of globalization in a more distributed way. But we aren't going to win the culture war by sort of walking off the battlefield. And so it is absolutely up to us to explain our position because to the layperson, you're right. They will easily fall into the trap of saying, yeah, well, I mean, I do 
I do remember that liberals saying that they were about free speech. So maybe they are hypocritical if they want to silence racists. Um, And so we just have to make our position really relevant and argue our case and explain to people why a liberal society makes people happier and and increases human happiness. And we've just been really bad at doing that recently. Somebody who's good at it is author Ian Dunt. Um, Ian, finally. I've actually actually never thought about any of these issues before. Um, Wrapping this up... um, do you think that the, the sort of progressive ideas that are currently flashpoints, um, sexual identity uh, being one, you know, sort of reckoning with the legacy of imperialism, are you optimistic that they will actually be, you know, 50 years from now will be normalised in the way that sort of quite, you know, seemingly intractable things like gay rights, you know, over the, you know, over the space of 50 years became uh, ex- extremely normalised? No, I'm not. Um and I think that the the victory of gay rights has given a lot of us like a kind of intellectual framework that makes us quite complacent, especially for people in our age, right? Because we because we went through it, like we we still remember, like you know the I, the nineties when it was really very very fucking bad, and we know it now where there has been extremely significant progress, accepted not quite universally, but with a very very broad consensus. And I think that gives us this this complacency of like oh. You, you know, the, the class, the, the history myth of basically saying, well, you know, it's all ultimately going in our direction. And that's just not true. It goes in the direction that you fight for, you know, and if you don't put in the fight, you know, there's no direction towards history. If you don't put in the fight, then it can easily go in the other direction. And in fact, when you go, like when I was, when I was doing the book, you look at, when you look at big 400 year periods, there's whole 150 year, 200 year periods where things are going in the exact opposite direction. So ultimately, the thing is, it's up to us. And and that thing we've developed of assuming that things will always get better is not true. There is no wind. There is no direction towards history. We've got to do it ourselves. And nothing is banked. We cannot have a laissez-faire approach to it. Hard-won rights are easily lost. The battle continues. So we've reached the end of the show. My thanks to Ian. Oh, yeah, thanks. No, thank you very much. Nina. Thank you. And Naomi. Thanks. Now for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thank you to our latest Patreon backers. Hello and thank you to Kathy Jacobs, Paul and Ross Goff. Hello and best wishes from me to Frances Lovering, Mikey Papp and Adrian McCallum. Hello and many thanks to Julian Beach, Kevin Perry and Tim Wilkinson. And finally, thank you to Mike Allen, Sid Dixon and Andrew Jacobs. Take care. We'll see you next week. Remaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Nina Schick, Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. Audio production and scripting was by me, the ghost in the machine. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and Remaniacs is a Podmasters production. Bendy Bananas